Good morning. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor here at Redeemer Church of Dubai, and it is great to see you this morning. If you're new, we are glad that you're here with us. We've been studying the book of First Timothy over the last few months. Uh, last week, I had the joy, though, of, of sitting with you and sitting under the right preaching of God's Word. I enjoyed hearing one of our other elders, David Lawrence, preach, and my soul was stirred. I was challenged to delight in God's Word. I was challenged to marvel in the word of God. It's unbelievable how many men we have in this congregation who can rightly preach the word of God. It is a blessing and a joy for us. Now that's important because the Bible is God's very word to us. It's where we go to learn the meaning of life. It's where we go to learn of the creator God and his perfection. It's where we read that he is perfectly loving, perfectly just, and perfectly holy. It's where we learn of his creation of humanity and how each and every one of us from the very first two humans until today have sinned and have rejected God. We've run the other direction and rebelled against our maker, creator, and God. We read in the scriptures that our sin deserves death and judgment It's where we see the good news, though, that God has provided a way for sinners out of death and to be reconciled to God. We find out that there's a way in the Bible for us to to avoid the wrath of God falling on us by trusting in Jesus, who is God in the flesh, to save us through his death and resurrection. And if we do that, we are reconciled to God. The Bible's filled with good news because we read that this life is not the end of the story. We see that there's a day when Jesus, our Savior, will come back for us. The Bible is also a book on how to live the life now. It gives us instructions on how to be married, how to live out our singleness, how to live in the workplace, how to be a good friend. And in 1 Timothy, Paul answers the question, what is a healthy church? What are the marks or the signs that a church is healthy? Well, so far in our study over these two months, we've seen that healthy churches believe in the true gospel in the midst of a world that believes in false gospels. Healthy churches honor God with their corporate worship. Healthy churches pray for all kinds of people. They respect God's plan for worship in the local church. Healthy churches have godly leadership comprising of elders and deacons. Well, today we'll see that churches are to honor God with their belief and their behavior. If you're taking notes this morning, let me give you the main point of the sermon up front. Here it is. Healthy churches honor God by upholding, defending, and adorning the true gospel. Healthy churches honor God by upholding, defending, and adorning the true gospel. We'll break up that main point into the three sections of the sermon this morning. Upholding, defending, and adorning. So first, healthy churches uphold the true gospel. Look at verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This is the occasion and point of the entire book. Paul is away from Ephesus, he doesn't know when he'll return, and so he pens this letter to Timothy. His friend, it's the leader of the church there in Ephesus, 
Timothy's a young pastor. He's leading a young church. And Paul wants to make sure that they're clear on how they're to conduct themselves in the household of God. And so in these last verses of chapter 3, Paul's going to tell us something very important about the role of the church. Look at the rest of verse 15. The church is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, the Ephesians had a vivid illustration of pillars in the temple of Diana in Ephesus. Right there is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It had over 100 columns, over 20 meters high. This was a grand and massive and amazing building. But no matter how impressive that building was on the outside, it was devoid of life on the inside. That palatial building was a temple for a dead idol. Now the church is the real temple. And it's not a physical building, it's made up of Christians, of us, the church. We're the church of the living God. We're to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. A pillar is a supporting beam that holds the building steady. A buttress is also part of the building's support structure. It helps stabilize the walls of a large building. It keeps everything together. Now, a church is responsible to hold the truth steady in a world that's ever-changing and ever-doubting. You could say that the church is a guardian or a protector of the truth. This is a very important distinction. This is why the church's tradition isn't on on par with God's word. They're not the same. They don't have the same power or authority in the church. The church doesn't have the authority to decide the truth. It's the guarding of the truth that's already been given to us in the Bible. So we come to the scriptures not with the intent of making it say what we want it to say. But we come under its authority, bending our knees and bending our hearts to receive exactly what the word of God says. Now, our interpretation of the scripture is only as true as it is in line with what the Bible teaches. Just because someone in authority in the church says that a passage means this or a passage means that doesn't mean the Bible submits to that priest or that pastor's interpretation or opinion. The church is to be a protector, a guardian of God's truth for the good of the people and for the glory of God. But to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth, we need to know what the truth is. What are we to uphold? What are we to hold out to the world? Well, verse 16 tells us in a beautiful ancient creed, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the truth. It's the mystery of godliness. When Paul writes of mystery, he doesn't mean something dark, creepy, or puzzling. It's something that was previously unknown to us, but now is known because God has revealed it to us through Christ Jesus. Now, verse 16 is a wonderful outline of the gospel, the good news of how sinners can be saved. First, he, meaning Christ, was manifested in the flesh. Why? Well, to save us. Ever since the first humans were created until today, each of us, as I mentioned earlier, has rejected God by our sins of independence and pride. We wanted to be God ourselves. 
We placed ourselves on the throne of our lives. This is horrible news because God makes it clear in his word that eternal punishment is the only just punishment for high treason against the creator of the earth. But the good news is that from eternity past, from long before you were ever born, long before this world was even ever created, God had a plan to save his people. The triune God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had a plan to redeem his people. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, when he sinned then in the garden, God did not annihilate them instantly. He didn't cast them into eternal punishment in hell. And for thousands of years now, God has demonstrated his patience towards Adam and Eve and towards you and me. He provided a way of escape through his son and his patience towards you is that you might now see Jesus. That you might see him as he truly is. That Jesus, the son of God, was fully man and fully God. That he came from the edge of the universe, from above the stars and above the galaxies and he arrived in the womb of a virgin named Mary. He grew in that womb for nine months, like every other baby. Until on one ordinary cold winter's night, he was born in the flesh. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus, God in the flesh, truly walked on this earth. He was beaten in the flesh. His real body was pierced with real nails. Driven by real human hands. He was put on a real wooden cross. All the while taking on the real sins of all believers from all times. He suffered the very real wrath of God as he hung there on that tree. But we know this atonement worked because Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Throughout his life he performed miracles. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. But most of all, he was vindicated by the Spirit because on the third day after his death, the Spirit rose him from the dead. It proved that everything that Jesus said was true and that he was indeed the Messiah. He was even seen by angels. They foretold the birth of Jesus to Mary and assisted Jesus during his ministry. They saw him after the resurrection They were the first to tell the disciples that Jesus was alive. This mystery of godliness was known both on earth and in heaven. And he was preached among the nations. Jesus gave his disciples and all of us the mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's the great commission and it's the mission of our church to make disciples of all nations. Now, this is happening. This is why we exist as a church. It's why we train men to be pastors in other cities in the world. It's why we help plant churches in Fujera and in Ras al-Khaimah. It's why later this afternoon, many of us will commute up to RIK to celebrate the groundbreaking of the new evangelical church building that will be built there. And these are exciting days on the Arabian Peninsula. That even in the dark corners of the desert of Arabia, the gospel is being preached. And best of all, not only that, Jesus is being believed on in the world. In the early church, the gospel is preached 
among the nations and dozens believed and then hundreds believed and then thousands believed. The early church grew and churches were planted and more came to faith. And the same continues in our day. We've seen our church grow. We've seen in our church many come to faith. We've seen Middle Easterners and Filipinos and Europeans and North Americans and South Americans and least reached and most reached. We've seen them turn from their sin and acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah of the world. We've seen them repent of their sin. We've seen them believe in Christ to save them. Jesus is believed on in the world. Many of you will remember on our fifth anniversary service, we took a few moments as we do every year in the service to write down ways that God has blessed us through the church in the past year. Well, several people in writing on those cards cards indicated that after being at Redeemer, they came to faith. Now, here are some of those encouraging comments. One person writes, God brought me from my home country to bring me to Redeemer. I now recognize God as my savior. I was away from him, but now he is my life and I am a new creation. Even in the heart of the Arabian Peninsula, Jesus is believed on in the world. Another writes, I became a Christian through the university student ministry at this church three years ago. Another person had been attending Redeemer for six months and had not previously understood the gospel. I am changed, she said. I'm learning that it's not my works that saves me, but Christ. And just yesterday, I've accepted Jesus as my Lord. I'm told I'm born again, but I still carry the fears of my brothers and sisters. But I have now left everything in the hands of Christ. My struggles are nothing for him because he took my sins. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is believed on in the world. One person writes, it is through the faithful weekly preaching of the gospel of Christ at Redeemer that I have come to saving faith despite the fact that I grew up in a Christian home. Jesus is believed on in the world. If you're here and you don't yet know Jesus, I want you to know that's why we exist as a church. That's why we started over five years ago. It's because we want you to know Jesus. We want you to understand that he is the only way out of your sin and rebellion against God. Friend, we want you to know the truth. We want you to know the good news that God saves sinners. That Christ is your only hope in this life and in the next. Well, if you don't know him, trust in him today. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and he will save you. Well, finally, at the end of the creed, we see that Jesus is taken up in glory This likely refers to the ascension. Jesus has become the glorified Christ. He's risen and he's ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. This is the good news that God saves sinners through Jesus. Oh, friends, the church is to be the buttress and pillar of this truth. We are to protect it. We are to guard it. We are to hold it up to the world. Well, why is this so important for us to do? What's the urgency? Well, one reason is because false teachers are present. That leads us into point number two. Point two, healthy churches defend the true gospel. We defend the true gospel because in chapter four, verse one, Paul writes, 
Now the Spirit expressly said that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. False teachers are coming. Well, when will they arrive? Well, it seems like they've already come because in verse 3, the people were already following or falling away. They were already falling away from the truth. When the Bible speaks of the last days, it refers to the whole period from the resurrection of Jesus until his return. Don't be surprised, Timothy. They'll come. They're already here. Don't be shocked. Be ready. Defend the truth. Departing from the faith is the same as apostasy. It's someone who once claimed to believe the true gospel, but has since renounced the message. Well, what causes apostasy? Well, Paul lists a couple reasons. First, there are demons in the world. Satan is the king of demons, leading them to wreak havoc on earth. One of my first pastors ended every church staff meeting with this charge to us. He said, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't let it be you. No, demons exist. Demonic deception is a real threat. But we shouldn't give Satan too much credit and start looking for demons behind every sand dune. Well, the Bible doesn't take the position of giving every problem its own demon, as if there was a demon of mutton biryani indigestion, or an evil demon of ineptitude that keeps the South African cricket team from finally winning the World Cup. No, every time we sin, we don't just point the finger and say, well, the devil, he made me do it. No, that can't be our excuse. We don't look for the devil everywhere. We don't pass off blame, but the devil and his demons are real. Spiritual warfare is real. It's a real threat. And demons have their, as their aim to promote false teaching, to keep the world in bondage and to deceive God's children. They want nothing more than for you to fall away from the faith and to believe in lies. But that's not, all, that's not the only reason why false teaching exists. Look at verse 2. False teaching is spread through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So there are demons on the one hand, but there are also lying leaders. Their consciences are seared. No, your conscience is your ability to believe rightly and then to live out that belief. Seared has the idea of being branded with a red hot iron. It was used as the branding of cows in order to establish ownership. That they're not following a different owner, a different master. They've been burned so badly their consciences can no longer be felt. Those that fall away from the faith are like being burned so badly that they are now numb. Their consciences have been anesthetized and deadened. They make a shipwreck of their faith and they don't even feel bad about it. They don't feel anything. This idea of a conscience is mentioned throughout the book of First Timothy. Paul wants Timothy to keep his conscience clear, to have a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He tells deacons to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Paul's point, 
Don't let your conscience be owned by anyone else. Don't let it be deadened to the truth. Don't let it be numb to what's right and what's virtuous. Keep it clear. Keep it sharp. One way to do this is to stop quenching the Spirit. If you continually quench or stop the Holy Spirit's influence in your life by doing what your conscience is wicked and evil, you'll sear your conscience. Keep your conscience clear by knowing the Word of God, knowing what it really says, and by resisting sin. Well, false teachers are everywhere. And they're great actors. They know how to play the part of a Christian, but they just want money or fame or notoriety. Satan disguised himself as an angel of light, and a false teacher often disguises himself or herself as a holy man or holy woman. Now, heresy likes to wear the mask of Christianity. The tricky thing is, demons and false teachers often appear like nice people. I mean, the devil would never walk down the aisle, get up here in red tights holding a pitchfork saying, Here I am. I'm the devil. I would now like to teach you lies from the pit of hell. Please, can I sign up to do the children's ministry next week? Or can I bring some smoked barbecue to the church potluck? No, that would never, ever happen. Evil teachers and demonic influences would never show up that way. They would never announce their arrival. They would never tell us who they are. No one ever shows up to midweek Bible study wearing a red cape. At least no normal person would. No, that's not a sales pitch. It's not going to get anybody to follow you. Instead, false teachers say, well, you should probably listen to my special insight, my special revelation from God. Do you have spiritual experiences like I do? Would you like to have one? You want to know God better, don't you? You want to know God more deeply, more intimately. Well, I have some special ways that you can do that. Is that really what God said? This sounds more like a certain serpent in a certain garden, doesn't it? Remember, church, just because someone opens up the Bible or quotes a few verses doesn't mean they speak for God. The demons do the same thing. Just because someone's on the television set preaching doesn't mean they're speaking the truth. It just means that they have enough money and charisma to get a time slot on a TV channel. Satan's work is subtle. It's hard to see. Sometimes deception even comes from well-meaning people. Maybe they're not in it for the fame. Maybe they're not in it for notoriety or even money. Maybe they're sincere. They think what they're saying or what they're doing is actually the truth. They're trying to be helpful. But friend, we don't accept the word from someone because they seem kind, sincere, or nice. We match up everything said with the very word of God. No, this book, this word, is our ultimate authority. Don't even take the preacher's word here at Redeemer. Be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 that'll take every word that they hear from the pulpit and see if it matches up with God's words. Oh friend, we are careful to not add anything to his word like the false teachers did. Look at verse 3. 
These false teachers, they forbid marriage and required abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul doesn't say which foods, but we know in Rome and in Corinth, there was controversy in the church around the issue of eating meat. This seems to be what's in view here. This was celibate vegetarianism. That marriage and meat are evil. And what they're saying is that pork adobo is of the devil. <laughs> Eating double shack cheeseburgers with extra shack sauce and cheese fries is evil. Ugali with meat, butter chicken, the devil's food. Marriage and physical intimacy with your spouse is of the devil. But thankfully, 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 these false teachers were wrong. And I love verse 4. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. I love that verse. I mean, in light of the context, if, this is maybe my life verse, if there ever was one. This is the passage I've been waiting to preach at Redeemer for five years. All food is good. You heard it here at Redeemer Church of Dubai, April 24th, 2015. All food is good. Chicken pad thai, good. Tenderloin filet wrapped in bacon, good. Jollibee Aloha Champ Burger, very good. Now friends, there is nothing wrong with being single or a vegetarian. Or even a single vegetarian. That's fine. If that's you, that's okay. Paul speaks highly of singleness. He even says there's advantages to being single in ministry. There's nothing wrong with being a vegetarian. It has many health benefits. And you have the freedom in Christ to do so. Here's where the problem comes. The problem comes when any matter of opinion or secondary conviction is treated as essential to the gospel. Now the motives may be good at the start. Maybe there's some spiritual discipline that you've practiced or some cause you've taken up that helps you to grow spiritually. But this becomes an issue when your opinion or your conviction is now mandatory to make you and others holy. There's nothing wrong if you've decided to be committed to your singleness or to only eating paneer tikka masala every day. That's okay. But just don't tell me I can't eat hamburgers and still be pleasing to God. Now these false teachers made requirements that God never made. Well, what does God say about his creation? It's good. It's good. Everything he created was good and shouldn't be rejected if received with thanksgiving and honor and glory to him. Notice that Paul doesn't say here that everything is good, but that everything created by God is good. This is important because in our fallen existence, we've been guilty of distorting God's good gifts. Those distortions aren't good, but the things that God created there the beginning that he called good, those things are good and wonderful and pleasing to him when we enjoy them and give him the honor and glory and praise. So what is the antidote to legalism? 
Well, it's what I've just said. It's receiving God's good gifts with joy and thanksgiving. It's verse 5. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. We give thanks to God by prayer and the reading of his word. Now, Paul may have prayers and mealtimes in view here. Our prayer doesn't change the nature of our food, but it's a way of acknowledging that what we're about to eat is a gift from God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Well, the implications of this go beyond eating to all of life. When we give thanks, it sets apart our food and anything else in its true perspective as God's good provision and creation. G.K. Chesterton said, Will you say grace before meals? All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. A healthy spiritual life doesn't mean a life without meat or marriage. It means honoring God for the gifts he's given us. But you say, well, Pastor Dave, what's wrong with just a few extra rules? I mean, can't they help you grow spiritually? Can't they restrain our sinful inclinations? Well, friend, it's actually a big problem. Legalism is an insulting slap to the face of the giver of the good gifts. Do you see the danger that legalism is? You have to disregard things that God calls good in order to call yourself good. Legalism is ridiculous when you see it in that light, isn't it? We are essentially disregarding God's design for our lives and saying that living in this other way pleases God more. It makes no sense. It's insane. Oh, friends, let's trust that what God has prescribed in his word is what's best for us. Let's not turn to rules mortal man makes maximizing prohibitions, minimizing privileges and freedoms. No, healthy churches defend the true gospel. There's no better message. There's no need to change it, to distort it, rewrite it, add to it, or subtract from it. If you adjust the gospel, you destroy it. Gospel revision always equals gospel reversal. Gospel revision always equals turning away from the true gospel. It destroys it, it smashes it, it erases it, it loses its power, it destroys it. Now God saves sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus, period. Nothing else, nothing added, nothing more, nothing less. Friends, we stick to the word of God. This is why we're committed to teaching the point of the sermon passage as the point of the sermon each week. It's why we study the scripture that will be preached on Friday, the week prior, in our weekly community groups. And why we go by verse by verse through the book of Ephesians in our Wednesday weekly Bible study. It's why at this church we encourage one-on-one discipleship. A man and a man, a woman and a woman coming together to read God's word and to pray through it together. That's why we've started the Gulf School of Theology and have D.A. Carson coming in June to teach the Gospels. That's why we have Gary Miller from Australia coming later this year to teach the Pentateuch. And why Mark Dever is coming next year to teach on the church. 
We want to grow in our understanding of God's word. That's why we encourage parents to teach their children the Bible. Parents are the primary disciples of their children and are charged with teaching them the word and praying with them. I mean, dinner table conversations, car rides to school, walks around the neighborhood can be key times of gospel discussion with their children and teenagers. Paul urges Timothy to be faithful to these things in the church. Look at verse 6. He tells Pastor Timothy, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. You know, the man-made regulations of the false teachers only deal with the externals. They can't and don't and won't deal with the heart. They're silly. I mean, you can refrain from movies or all alcohol, but deep down be far from God. Healthy churches uphold the true gospel Healthy churches defend the true gospel by teaching the words of faith and good doctrine to one another. But healthy churches go even further. They work hard to adorn the true gospel by their actions. That's the third point of this sermon. We've seen that healthy churches uphold the true gospel. Healthy churches defend the true gospel. Now we'll see that healthy churches adorn the true gospel. They adorn it. They don't give in to false teaching. Don't... They don't give in to irreverent and silly myths. Rather, the end of verse 7, Paul says, train yourself for godliness. Paul tells this young pastor Timothy, instead of listening to these false teachers giving you lists of external things to do one after another, go and adorn the gospel by working on your heart. To adorn something is to magnify its natural beauty. And there's nothing more adorning for the gospel than a Christian backing up their gospel words with godly living. Godliness means reverence. It's a respect for God. It's an awareness that all of life is lived before the very face of God. John Calvin called godliness the beginning, the middle, and the end of Christian living. The godly person places God at the very center of every activity and every endeavor. The godly person walks with God at home, at work, when they're alone late at night, when with friends at the restaurant and with family back in their home country. The godly person is the same person on Thursday afternoon sitting in traffic as he is on Friday morning singing songs about Christ. Healthy churches have pastors who are not only committed to teaching the truth, but they're committed to living in light of the truth. Healthy churches have godly elders and godly members. Healthy churches focus their efforts not on programs, but on personal holiness. Sometimes that means fewer programs and more personal discipleship. It means less social activity and more personal proactivity to pursue Christ. And we don't work our our way to earn God's favor and salvation, but we do exercise ourselves into godliness. You know, godliness is mentioned 15 times in the New Testament, but nine of them are in this epistle. Paul is utterly concerned that churches are filled with godly Christians. I mean, it's telling, isn't it, that in this pastoral epistle, this 
What is a healthy church letter? Paul doesn't give the Ten Commandments of fast church attendance growth or ten things to boost financial giving. There are no tips on how to host the best of Now, the ideal minister and the ideal church is one that is marked by godliness. Now, given the choice between a gifted man or a godly man in this pulpit, who would you choose? Unfortunately, much of the world promotes gifts and entertainment instead of godliness. That's why many megachurches are led by talented men who don't love Jesus. And why many of the smallest, less heralded churches in the world are led by godly men whose names you'll never hear of. I wonder what the people in Dubai and Sharjah would say about me as a pastor and us as a church. Would they say that we're marked by holiness? What perception of the church do your coworkers have of us through their relationship with you? What is your deepest desire and goal here in Dubai? Is it personal holiness or have you believed in the lie of Dubai that says your purpose here is health, wealth, and happiness? Paul says godliness is so important that we should train or exercise ourselves into it. It's the idea that we should spend time in the spiritual gymnasium to work out our souls. You know, over the past eight weeks, me and five other men in this church embarked on an adventure to encourage each other to eat well and exercise. We even had a chat group that showed pictures of the salads we were eating. And some guys would share pictures of cheeseburgers as a joke which is not very funny when you've got carrots and beets on your lunch plate. And every day when I'd walk by the Krispy Kreme in my building, I could practically hear the donuts whispering my name. Dave, eat me. Every day walking by, but my friends helped me persevere. They cheered me on. Each of us made a commitment to discipline ourselves for bodily training. Well, the eight-week challenge ended this week. And then I opened up my Bible to begin working on this sermon, and I read verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, I'll be honest, I was convicted. I exercised every day. I ate only healthy food and drank water. I worked hard for bodily training. But how hard was I training for godliness? Bodily training has value. It's got some value. It's good to thank God with our bodies. It's good to honor God with them. Taking care of our bodies is a stewardship issue. It's a good thing, of course. But spiritual training holds promise now and forever. The saying is trustworthy and true. Timothy, Church at Ephesus, Redeemer, Church of Dubai, grow in godliness for this life and for the next. Now, one theologian says there's a great connection between sanctification and glorification. 
That sanctification is the work the Holy Spirit does in this life to make the believer more godly. Glorification is the work that the Holy Spirit will do in the next life to make the believer gloriously and perfectly godly. The two works of the Spirit can't be separated. The godliness begun in this life will be perfected in the next. Sanctification is the root of glorification. And glorification is the fruit of sanctification. Now that theologian is is right. There are eternal ramifications for our pursuit of godliness. Oh friend, how are you doing exercising your soul? Do you sacrifice your time for the physical gymnasium and neglect the spiritual one? Are you training to run races on the weekends while your spiritual life slumbers? Healthy churches are always marked by Christians devoted to spiritual gymnastics, to spiritual exercise. Now, Paul doesn't go into detail here with what these exercises are, but in the context, we're to exercise in the same way we nourish our souls through the word of God. Healthy churches are filled with Christians who devote themselves to reading, to praying, to meditating on and memorizing God's word. I love what David said last week regarding the key to scripture reading being scripture meditation. In fact, it was also one of the assignments for the Gulf School of Theology's first seminary class with Dr. Ware in January. Instead of having the students memorize portions of scripture, he asked us to meditate on it. He wanted us to to think deeply about it, to ponder it, to read over it again and again, to pray through it, to apply it to our lives, and to talk to others about it. It's amazing that when you do meditate on Scripture so deeply, you actually do memorize it, not just for your mind, but also for your heart. Scripture meditation is a great way to exercise our souls. It's an opportunity for us to examine our lives in light of God's Word. Another exercise to do is fasting from food. We've talked a lot about the greatness of food, but for the sake of, not for the sake of penance or weight loss, we can fast from food as a spiritual exercise, as a discipline, for the purpose of spiritual gain. It's to refrain from eating for a period of time to concentrate on pursuing Christ. Maybe you you could fast for a meal or even a day or several days. You take the time that you would to eat and to make your meal, to read God's word and to pray. To ask for God's revival in your heart and in this church and in this city. That the constant hunger pangs that you feel remind you that God is our all-sufficient Savior. That he has provided everything we need for life and for godliness. Friend, exercise your soul. Spiritual gymnastics or disciplines are different than legalism. Lest you think we're just ascribing to another form of legalism. Legalism is always self-centered. Spiritual discipline is always God-centered. The legalist works to gain favor with God, but the disciplined Christian says, I'm going to do these things because God loves me and I love him. And because I want to grow in grace. Our true godliness is a response to what God has already done for us. In light of the gospel and God's magnificent pursuit of us, we can't help but respond to him. We can't help but turn and run towards him. But friend, godliness doesn't happen automatically. You have to work at it. 
D.A. Carson has always said, no one just drifts off into godliness. You don't just find yourself there one day accidentally. No, we toil and we strive. And we do it because, verse 10, we have our hope set on the living God. Our hope is not on the things of this world. Now, Dubai is not as good as it gets. I read an article speaking of exercising and working out. I read an article in the newspaper here yesterday about a new mega gym that just opened in Dubai Sports City. It's a huge state-of-the-art complex with a large Olympic-sized swimming pool, hundreds of aerobic exercise machines, a mixed martial arts zone, and a full gymnastics center. And this article said that in the initial months, the gym already has thousands of members, far exceeding their expectations. Redeemer Church of Dubai, I want to challenge you this morning to join God's spiritual gymnasium. Membership is free. It's not going to cost you anything. But the exercise is hard work. It's a toiling. It's a striving. But I promise, friend, there is a great and eternal payoff. Friends, let's give more energy to our souls than the world gives to their physical bodies. Let's plan in our schedules time for Bible reading and prayer. Let's set up chat groups to encourage each other to fight sin. Let's be parents who read the Bible to our families at dinner time and pray with our children at bedtime. Let's be a people who stop and pray for the hurting when we see someone in pain. Let's be a body that confesses our sin openly in hopes that we would get help to kill it. Let's be a church that values spiritual growth over numerical growth. Let's be a people who would fast together from food and ask for a revival in this land. Friends, let's together join the gymnasium of God and let's train ourselves for godliness. Each and every one of us, each member of the body of Christ, would we join together to train ourselves unto godliness and holiness as we set sights on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. We see there at the very end, like chapter 2, Paul tells us again that all kinds of people will be saved. In case there's any confusion, Paul's clear that not everyone will be saved, but that Jesus is the special Savior of those who believe. Oh, Christian friend, God has specially saved you and redeemed you. He has chosen you. He has reconciled you to the living God. And he has saved you. You were dead and now you are alive. Rejoice in this great God. And together let's pursue Christ with all of our might. Because life is far too short to waste it. Well, friends, healthy churches honor God by upholding Defending and adorning the true gospel. Let's pray to that end. Oh Father, you are holy. Oh Father, you are good. In your love, you provided a redeemer for us in Christ. That very Messiah who died for us. It's unbelievable to think, God, that you would come to us. That you would be in the flesh. That you would die for us. Oh, Father, would we respond to this glorious truth by pursuing godliness together? 
would our church be marked by holiness and by contentment in Christ? Oh, Father, you are holy. Would we pursue that same holiness in the days ahead? We pray this in the mighty and holy name of Jesus. Amen.